When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's see what David's up to. Good morning, David. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing this morning? Uh, it's, just, uh, it's just a very pleasant morning out there. Golly, it was a starry morning and wasn't below freezing. Didn't The grass didn't crunch when I walked on it, so the day's off to a good start. <laughs> good for you. We both were, woke up on the right side of the dirt. <laughs> Every, yeah, as a friend of mine says, it's better to be seen than to be viewed. Yes, I, I, I hope you don't mind, but I have used that one, too. Very good. Anyway, Bob, I had some compost put down yesterday in the yard. Okay. And, uh, they, of course, I watered it in with sprinkler system. But then I got a, uh, an email, and it said to keep watering it for two to three days to keep the uh, microbial action going. Does that make sense to you? Well, if you do water it very lightly, you know, that's, that soil is good and moist underneath it. They put it down, what, maybe a quarter of an inch thick? Correct. You're going to have plenty of microbial action. Uh, you certainly don't need to soak it uh, anymore. I mean, the ground's wet underneath it. You watered in good after you put it down. I would say if it's convenient, you know, water for five minutes or something or get out there and just, you know, wet it down a little bit. But I'm I'm sure not going to go to uh, a lot of a lot of effort. Uh, were you home when they put it out? Yes, sir. Were they, what, did it with the way with the way they did it. <laughs> they had these gigantic uh, applicators that were gasoline-powered. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, something they that literally rolled around your yard, or was it uh, actually blown on? No, they rolled around the yard. They, Like I said, they were doing real big, and they had Honda motors on them and controls on them and two spinners <laughs> on them, and they were throwing that stuff out. I was surprised, though. It looked like coffee grounds almost. It's well, in color. It, you know, it, it all depends on what went into it. The better compost, of course, are derived from lots of different feedstocks. But what they can do, they have something called a trammel screen that they can run compost or mulch or anything else through that kind of sorts out the big chunks and the small chunks and uh sounds like you got some pretty good compost if it was already you know well screened and fairly small was it steaming uh if you put your hand on it no. did it feel warm okay i wouldn't no, worry not at all. yeah i wouldn't worry about watering it then um you know if if it's if it's fully finished i don't think you gain a thing by watering and if it didn't have any heat to it then i suspect it was uh you know just totally finished so um, I guess they want you to look at it and feel good about it and be glad you spent the money to do it. 
But uh, considering that you've watered it thoroughly, I I see no need to water it again the next two or three days. Uh, it should maintain plenty of moisture for your biological activity to continue. Okay, good thing, Bob. Have a great day. Keep you do the same and uh, get out and enjoy. <laughs> this is that time of year that we wait for for about four or five months during the summer and early fall. So uh, it's just going to be a great day to be out and getting things done. David, I appreciate the early call this morning. You have a good weekend. You too, Bob. You're Thank right. you. Bye. All right. So back to making the yard look nice for Thanksgiving, for the holidays. If you have sunny areas and you want to have flowers every day of the winter, then your two best choices are either pansies or little pansies we call violas for Johnny Jump Ups. I mean, I remember the days when there was one Johnny Jump Up, and there were about five varieties of pansies. Today, we probably have 30 or 40 different varieties of Johnny Jump Ups and probably 100, 150 variety of pansies out there. And what they all have in common is that they want plenty of sun, and that they literally have the capability to bloom every day of the winter. So where you're looking for flowers and you have a sunny spot, they are, in my opinion, the absolute best choice. Now, where you just want color, you can put ornamental kale, you can put ornamental cabbage. They mix in some Dusty Miller. You take that gray foliage of the Dusty Miller and put a blue pansy against it or put a yellow pansy against it. It just makes the colors jump. It's just amazing how much they will show up. And, uh, um, again, great thing to do for the sun. Uh, Paul's just called in. Let me say one more thing, Paul, about uh, pansies, and then I'll come to you. But one mistake that people make, we're getting people that think they just have to plant the super majestic pansy, which is the biggest pansy out there. This thing has the potential in the right environment to produce flowers that are probably three and a half, maybe even four inches across. It's not going to happen in South Texas unless we have an Arctic spell like you wouldn't believe because the cooler the weather, the bigger the pansy flower can grow. And if you live a little further north, even in Dallas, the super majestic things like that, you will get some pretty giant flowers on them. But where we are, Hill Country, South Texas, with our typical winter, your super majestics are not going to get any bigger than your ordinary majestics or, for that matter, even some of the matrix, some of the uh, different varieties. So don't uh, don't buy these things that are advertised as the biggest panties you've ever seen because we simply don't have the climate in a typical year. I never say normal. In a typical year, we don't have enough coal for those pansies to become the absolute giants that they might be a little bit further north and just throwing your money away. If you spend a lot of extra money trying to buy something, that's just not going to happen here because weather has so much to do with it. Having said that, let's get back to the phone lines and see what Paul's up to this morning. Good morning, Paul. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, with the with the freezing weather that we had, I didn't get a chance to cover my my vegetable garden. So obviously, my tomatoes and my peppers are done. Okay. Are my radishes going to be done? No. Or what? No. Radishes. Okay. How how big are the tops on the radishes? How much of a leaf structure do they have? Um, right. My leaves are probably half dollar size. Okay. So they've been planted for a couple of weeks at least. Yeah. Here's the thing about radishes, about beets, about turnips, about carrots, about that whole bunch, is the first two or three days after they sprout and start growing, 
they could potentially be harmed by freezing weather. Once they have gotten a little sunshine, once they've started building a little bit of sugar, radishes should be hardy down to 15 degrees, as should carrots and beets and most all of your root crops. So um, they're, they're something you're not going to have to worry about really through the whole winter unless we just get a, you know, a, a real Arctic blast. And a few of the great big radishes, like this one they call a watermelon radish that can be three inches in diameter or bigger they're perhaps a little more cold sensitive but we're still good down to 20 degrees so once your radishes are up and started just stop worrying about them uh same thing's okay. true with broccoli cauliflower cabbage lettuce uh your bok choy not as cold hardy maybe 25 26 but kind of weather we've had is pretty hard on the eggplant the peppers and the tomatoes as you unfortunately observed but uh your radishes and other cool weather vegetables shoot we can uh, we can play plant more different things in the cold weather than we can in the warm weather weather so time to be looking to that fall garden and winter garden and not not worrying about what summer is just you know, just passed on us. My onions should be all right as well, shouldn't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I've i seen onions freeze at 12 to 15 degrees, but hopefully we're not going to see any of that kind of weather, and we're certainly not going to see it in the next month or so. Okay, and then uh, I put in some sugar snap peas uh, probably same time i put in those radishes a couple of weeks ago right should be all right as well they should be all right sugar snaps are a little bit more sensitive but typically here's what happens with sugar snaps the foliage is quite cold hardy but blooms and developing peas are not so don't be surprised uh if you don't have a lot of flowers don't be surprised and i mean we may turn around and have six weeks of warmer weather now that's what typically happens here but but freezing weather frost will be damaging to the to the blooms and will retard the actual pea production so when we plant snow peas sugar snaps whatever in the fall we're kind of gambling that we're going to have a nice long fall uh your plants should do fine they should uh unless we get down sub 20 degrees they should go all winter long but if we stay down with having regular frosty nights don't expect to get a whole lot of production from them probably until february or so that's the downside the good side is uh those plants should be enormous by then and you should have the heaviest production you've ever seen next spring okay and now that we have now that i'm going to have um quite a big opening in my my garden i already have some kohlrabis and some brussels sprouts and uh cabbages and stuff going what else can i put in my garden you know that's going to thrive this time of year that i have this big open spot now well just about anything leafy if you like uh spinach uh we're getting i think we're probably cool enough plus spinach you know is the one thing that doesn't take heat well but uh, you've got your flat leaf spinach you've got your curly leaf or savoy spinach you've got mustard greens you've got chard You've got, uh, oh golly, probably 20, 30 different kinds of lettuces. Bok choy, bok choy is going to take a little more protection if we get down in low 20s, but pretty much all those leafy things are going to be fine. Among the root crops, you can plant uh, not just your radishes, but carrots and turnips and beets, and uh, they will, you know, they're very cold tolerant. And then in the so-called coal family, you mentioned cabbage and Brussels sprouts. By the way, I've got glad you've got those in because your brussels sprouts take longer to produce than just about anything else you plant in the winter months but uh, you can also plant many different kinds of broccoli flower or broccoli and then you've got the uh, different 
forms, so to speak. You've got the oh, broccoli rob and some of these things that don't have such a distinct head but still are absolutely delicious. You've got cauliflower, and related to the cauliflower, you've got the Romanesco, which is very unusual. And nowadays you can have purple cauliflower and orange cauliflower and <laughs> just all sorts yeah, of different a, things. I bought a purple cauliflower. The I'd seen it there, and I was like, I've never seen a purple cauliflower before. I'm going to give this a shot, and... Uh, the plant looks cool. Hopefully we, you know, get a nice head on there and enjoy something delicious. Oh, you so. should. You certainly should. Uh, the thing you will need to remember six, eight weeks from now is that cauliflower is susceptible. The The developing head is susceptible to sunburn. But the nice thing about right. cauliflower is they make those great big leaves. And when that head starts to develop, which is still six, eight weeks away, you want to pull those leaves up and just kind of make an umbrella over the top of it. Put a big rubber band or something around like that around and hold it in place. And, uh, yeah, the orange variety is called cheddar. The purple one, there are two or three different purple ones. But <laughs> you'll have some very colorful uh uh, plants out there. They all taste the same, but it sure does make for uh, a pretty salad if you're eating them fresh or when you steam them, especially the purple will lose a lot of that pigment because the purple is called anthocyanin. It's water soluble, whereas your oranges and yellows are not. But uh, it still be something to be a lot of fun for you to grow. Uh, cauliflower is not quite as hardy as broccoli, so if we start getting down uh, to the low 20s, things like that, you may want to put a little insulate, a little some sort of row cover over them but um they you know typical south texas winter cauliflower is going to just thrive through the entire winter you may want to plant a little bit more of it in about another month or so because unlike broccoli you know broccoli you cut that big head out of the middle and it keeps on making little side heads for weeks and weeks afterwards cauliflower once you've cut that big head out of the middle that's all it's going to do so after when you harvest it you might as well pull up the whole plant and plant something else there but uh yeah those those are all things you could think about planting right now so i've got plenty more time you know to add more broccolis and cauliflowers even as we go further oh yeah or so yeah typically i'll plant as many as three different crops through the winter months but remember a couple of things uh now if you plant broccoli cauliflower cabbage that that family of plants are better set out as plants rather than trying direct seed into the ground but uh things that you are direct seeding even the most cold hardy are not cold hardy the first oh week or so that they're up out of the ground so plant more radishes if you plant more uh more lettuce you may plant from seed um even though when they not when they're mature but once they really get started growing that sunlight you know helps them make a bunch of sugar in the leaves sugar services and antifreeze and they'll be perfectly cold hardy but that first week or two they're up out of the ground they can freeze if we get a heavy frost if we get you know temperatures down in the mid 20s so uh, you've got lots of time to plant but on those things you're planting from seed do remember you'll need to protect the first couple of weeks take a close look at things you buy as plants broccoli cauliflower and things like that uh, if they look like they have just come out of a nice warm greenhouse and unfortunately a lot of them have then they're going to be a little tender they're going to take a little time to harden off if they are if they have 
<laughs> well, let me put it this way. If you buy them out of a greenhouse, you're probably going to have to continue to protect them, let them harden off a little bit. If you buy them from a nursery that has them out in the weather, chances are they are totally hardy. You can just plant them and go about your normal watering and fertilizing and forget about cold weather. But um, things that may have come out of a warm greenhouse, things you planted from seed, they're going to need a little help to get used to the cold if we move into a colder period, like I say, many years we get this uh, this early frost, this early freeze. I think Mother Nature does it just to please the deer hunters, and then we go back into some summertime or some you know very very fall like warm weather. So it's just the ideal time to get that garden going. Perfect. So seeds, uh, beet seeds, I can put those in, just kind of watch them a little bit. Yeah, and yeah, beet seeds. seeds. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, don't be in a rush to plant more peas because, like I say, they uh, the, the you're not going to get a lot of production if we get cold. If we continue to have frost, you're not going to get much production till next spring. I think with uh, things, I usually plant my next crop of sugar snaps and things in January or so uh, because okay. they're really not going to produce until March. So plant them if you like, but I'd make that the bottom of the list for things you're going to set out. Yeah, I built a really nice trellis in my yard or in my garden, and I was hoping to get that filled up with some peas and, you know. Well, go for it then. Just just recognize that uh, um, they are not quite as cold-hardy overall, and uh, the blooms and the developing peas uh, even frost will set those back, but where you're looking for just, you know, a pretty plant, if you're, and, and be sure when you plant the peas, there are two varieties. There is a vining variety, and there are bush snow peas and sugar snaps both, uh, so where you want them up that trellis, just read the instructions and be sure that it's one of the peas that uh, does climb, that will it will be upright because, like I say, there there's some spreading forms that are really never going to get over six inches tall. Just be sure you're getting the right ones. Right on, Bob. Well, I really appreciate your help. And, uh, you know, this uh, South Texas gardening, it's been a real eye-opener. But I think, uh, I think I've learned enough with my mistakes and listening to you that maybe <laughs> next year will be a lot better. <laughs> Just like the Astros. Wait till next year. But, uh, yeah, it's the fun thing about gardening here is you should be able to pick something to enjoy every single month of the year out of your garden. I mean, every single day of the year out of your garden. So uh, go for it and call me anytime I can uh, give you answers to all those questions, Paul. All right. Thanks a lot, Bob. Enjoy your weekend. You do the same, sir. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. Uh, next up is Sid. Good morning, Sid. Well, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. If you have a, a garden bed that maybe you just don't want to do much with uh, this winter. Uh-huh. What are some things that you can plant that will help build up that soil? Have you ever had a problem with root knot nematodes? No, I don't think so. Okay, because for those people who have had root knot nematodes, uh, they can plant something called Elbon rye or cereal rye, which serves as a trap crop. The root knot nematodes burrow into the roots, but chemicals within the rye keep them from reproducing and they can't ever get out. It's kind of like the Hotel California. <laughs> you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Those guys get in and they can't get back out. So Elbon rye is a possibility, but I don't consider it you know, probably the top choice since you don't have root knot nematodes. I would be looking at one of the legumes. 
I would be looking at, uh, uh, there's something called Austrian winter peas that are sort of a ground-hugging pea. The thing about legumes is they not only build the organic material in the soil, they not only work at somewhat smothering winter weeds, but they also have the potential. They have little nodules on the roots that are filled with the bacteria that can take nitrogen out of the air and convert it into a nitrogen fertilizer, so to speak. This is why our forefathers rotated planting peas versus corn because the corn took all the nutrients out of the soil the peas put things back into the soil so my top choice is going to be uh one of the cold hardy peas uh and one that makes lots of lots of foliage and and again something they call an austrian winter pea is going to be one of your best choices but if you want something you can pick one of these ground-hugging sugar snap type peas uh, you can plant those, and you actually go out and pick something to eat off of it, and uh, they will be building the soil all winter long, and then you can pull them up, you can turn them under, you can do anything you want when you get ready to plant in the spring. Okay. Uh, now, another thing is I've uh, had some people say that, uh, like your your tomato plants and, and things that uh, are, are stopping now or, or their time is over that uh, maybe it's better to cut them off than to pull them up what are your thoughts well it's true on lots of plants uh, number one just having those roots in the soil does build organic material the biggest builders of organic material of course are the bacteria the things we can't see but you've you've left some nice organic material there in the form of the root system Probably more importantly, plants that form an association with something we call the mycorrhizal fungi, and some some plants do, some plants don't. Broccoli doesn't, tomatoes do, but if you if you let a plant die back slowly, or if you just top the top off of it and leave the roots intact, uh, those the mycorrhizal fungi sense in a chemical way. Uh, that their source of nutrients is going away, and they will go into a dormant or resting state and be li- they're lying there ready to go to work for the next crop that you plant. If you rip them out of the ground, roots and all, you're disrupting the mycorrhizal fungi. You're giving them no time to form these uh, dormant resting structures. So uh, you've done some damage to the soil microbes when you physically pull them out of the ground. So I, I'm not you know going to tell you you absolutely need to do it one way or the other but there are reasons to leave the root system of the plant in there it does things for the soil and it does things for the microbial life in the soil as well does that make sense it makes a lot of sense what about okra you know because it it has you know that deep tap root and i usually pull the okra out the same thing's true if you wanted to leave it in there it's no big deal but it's going to not break down real quickly. You're going to be in there chopping around with a hoe or whatever trying to get next season's crop planted. So okra is one that I usually pull up. But same thing applies. If you want to leave it, it does build the soil to some extent. And uh, what I was wondering, I want to put out some compost. Uh, I'm now thinking about just leaving those plants in there and just covering them with compost. What are your thoughts on that? Did you have any problem at all with the squash vine borers? Not that I know of, although I I did not have any squash this year. Okay, well, that's, that's not a good thing. If I... The one thing... 
I, I do worry about a handful of really serious pests which can overwinter in the soil. I think it would be a great thing to put some compost out and just leave things in place. They're just, nah, they're not any diseases or anything we're going to worry about. But in my garden, I would put out some live beneficial nematodes just to take care of any grubs, to take care of any larvae from any of the, you know, things, the squash bugs, the squash vine borers, some of those other unpleasant little creatures that we sometimes deal with so i think it'd be fine to just put compost over them pick up that microbial activity uh spray them down with molasses i mean molasses uh provides that sugar provides that energy for uh your decomposing bacteria to go to work on things so yeah i'm i'm with you but i would i would proceed it in my garden with some live beneficial nematodes and i would follow it up with a little molasses. Dry molasses is more convenient, but it's also more expensive. Liquid molasses, as long as you've got a water source, is pretty darn easy to put out. And uh, I think you'd be doing the greatest thing you could to get soil ready for winter to do those things. Okay. Now, another problem that I have is my asparagus bed. Uh, you know, it, it's all grown up in Bermuda grass, and, you know, there's still the asparagus stalks there or the ferns, uh, how's the best way to deal with that? Move. <laughs> I, I, There's not an easy answer to that because, um, you know, asparagus is a perennial, uh, and you can't solarize it. The main way we take care of Bermuda grass is solarizing, but um, that would be as hard on your asparagus as it would on the Bermuda grass. I would tell you that, uh, you know... Maybe maybe next year, cut the ferns down early on your asparagus and spray it all with vinegar and orange oil. You won't kill the Bermuda, but you will at least set it back. Um, and they can coexist up to a point. Uh, your asparagus obviously would be a whole lot happier if it didn't have to deal with the Bermuda. But realistically, the only way you're ever going to be totally rid of the Bermuda is to dig your asparagus crowns up and then, uh, you know, put them in pots or whatever, solarize that spot to get rid of the Bermuda grass. But there's just nothing that will safely kill the Bermuda without harming the asparagus. And, I mean, it's just almost impossible to get in there and pull it out. I fight a little bit of it, but as long as I can stay ahead of it, I'm okay. But it's just getting out there with moist soil and just... Pulling up everything you can, knowing that you're never going to get it all, that it's going to be an ongoing battle. Yeah, okay. Here, Here is what I would do if you have room. I would, this January, when the asparagus plants are available, I would find a very clean, sunny part of the garden. I'd get myself a new asparagus bed going because nobody wants to be without fresh asparagus. I would grow your new bed uh, for 18 months, maybe two years, and it, by that time, your new asparagus is going to be up and producing real well. And at that point, I would go back to your old bed. I would dig up any good plants you have of the asparagus, carefully separate out any Bermuda that's wrapped around them, replant them into your new bed, and then just do something else with that area, eliminating, eliminating the Bermuda. But... Uh, uh, if you have room to do it, uh, I get a new asparagus bed started and just be prepared to shift from bed A to bed B at some point, then go back and dig the good stuff out of bed A and uh, go after the Bermuda with a vengeance. 
Okay. But wait until January to cut the ferns? Uh, no, you can cut the ferns back any time they've frosted. Uh, in fact, you can cut them back any time. My, you know, my asparagus, typically I start getting asparagus to eat in January. So I'm going to, I didn't even, I haven't gone down to the garden the past two days to see if mine froze. I got a pretty heavy frost in Bernie, but uh, you can cut it back any time now. Well, I'm in Kendalia, so I'm not too far from you. <laughs> Hope we're going to see you at the Kendalia Volunteer Fire Department supper tonight. Well, I have a granddaughter that's got a play tonight. So Ooh. A bit of a conflict. Well, I think they start serving at 530, so if you want to run by and get some good Mexican food on the way to the play, I, I think the granddaughter wins out every time, but... Uh, um, depending on what time she starts, she might sneak by before or afterwards, and they're just a great bunch of guys and gals to support. Well, I've, I've been there many times. Sid, I appreciate the call this morning. Get out and have a wonderful weekend, and congratulations you. to your granddaughter on her play. All right, thank you. Yes, sir, thank you. Bye. All right, uh, we're going to talk to Kim next, and then Sean. Good morning, Kim. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you this morning? Doing great. Sound like you're on the road. Yes, on my way home from work. Very good. Well, watch out for 410 near Blanco because they had a, a messy wreck in there when I came by an hour or so ago. So hopefully your route won't take you that way. Well, pretty close, but I can avoid it. Very good. Well, how can I help today? Um, my yard is full of weeds that are have died back um, with the heat and if I put a pre-emergent out on it, is that, that's what it's called, to keep it from coming back up next year? Well, let's, let, you brought up a real good subject, and let's take a couple of minutes here and talk about pre-emergents, how they work, and what they do. Uh, first of all, pre-emergents do absolutely nothing against perennial weeds. The way a pre-emergent works, whether you're using a natural one like corn gluten meal or whether you're using uh, the ones that I don't like, which are the chemically, synthetically derived products, but a pre-emergent, pre-emergent stops the developing seed from forming a root system. And typically, if we have some dry weather... The seed germinates, starts to grow, doesn't have any roots, and shrivels and dies because it has no roots. There are two problems with this. One is that if uh, we have a real long rainy spell where those little plants can go without roots for a while, they will eventually develop some roots and the pre-emergent will not have done its job. The other thing about pre-emergents is that they naturally break down with time so a lot of these weeds that can germinate anywhere from uh, February to August, you would have to put pre-emergent on three, four, five times to effectively cover the long period over which these seeds can sprout and grow. So I personally think your money is better spent uh, on fertilizer and compost. I think compost with the humic acids and things in it is uh, works as a natural pre-emergent. I was fighting sticker burrs in my yard one year so bad you could not even, even the dogs wouldn't walk into the area. And I simply put down a thin layer of compost over the top, and the next year I had virtually no sticker burrs or any other weeds. So 
I personally would rather see you spend your money on compost if you're going to you know, do anything like this and recognize that any weeds which are perennial, like your clovers, like your oxalis and some things like that, um, none, your pre-emergent is not going to do any good to begin with. Uh, here's the other thing is that during the winter months, our Bermuda and our zoysia always brown out. I don't ever remember a winter that we haven't at least got enough frost to turn the Bermuda brown. St. Augustine, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe, maybe not as far as browning out. But once your basic grass has turned brown, you can spray with vinegar and orange oil, and you will not hurt your basic grass, but you will kill every one of those little green things sprouting up. And with frost we had in the hill country, you know, right now my Bermuda will be brown this next week, and yet I've got jillions of little winter grasses and things. I can go in there and spray with vinegar and orange oil, not hurt my basic grass, but I will kill out all of those developing weeds within a matter of minutes. So I think there are better ways to address winter weeds than with pre-emergence. Okay. Well, that's... Well, then you've got your day free to do some other things like plant some pansies or cyclamen or just sit back and enjoy some of the prettiest weather we've had in a while, Kim. Always good to talk to you. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. Thank you. Goodbye. Sean is up first. Good morning, Sean. Hey, good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good. How about yourself this morning? Ah, it's my favorite time of day, sitting here sipping coffee, waiting for the sun to wake up. It's just, it's the prettiest time of day, that's for sure, and it sure is a starry sky out there this morning. Yep, beautiful. So many people fail to look up, and um, you're sure missing out. So, yes, sir. I have just a few questions for you. My my garden is just a, a little bit, um, a, a little bit grander in scale, and it's actually made for my four-legged, four-legged. Uh, mowers here okay i've got 15 different species planted for the winter and everything's coming up fantastic that'll be you know um but my little bit of concern i'd stockpiled this bermuda on here here at home well well the temperatures that we've had here recently the last couple days is that going to push the bermuda into dormancy um where you say here where is here for you uh, Lavernia, Sutherland Springs area. If you Bermuda will brown with the first heavy frost. Uh, I've had heavy frost in Bernie. We've had some frost in San Antonio. I don't think you've had much in Lavernia. So short of freezing weather or heavy frost, which can occur in the upper 30s, uh, your your Bermuda is going to be fine. It's not going to grow real actively unless we get back to some 80-degree days. But uh, until we have frost, it should stay good and green. And unlike some of the other crops like Sudan and things like that, we don't worry about prussic acid or anything else. The little grazers can eat the Bermuda after frost with no problem at all. Okay. And my, my other question there, you were talking to the other caller there about the beneficial nematodes. Right. And my, it kind of sounds funny, I guess, but one of my, one of my <laughs> grandest accomplishments is having a, you know, a, a gigantic supply of little beetles that take care of all of the, all of the dung that the cows <laughs> put out. And those are wonderful creatures. Yeah. Yes, and I, you know, I, it sounds funny, but I enjoy watching the little buggers, and I don't want them. I don't want them to be harmed because it's the best, you know, one of the best things I can do for my sandy soil. Oh, absolutely, but, absolutely. Um, it, beneficial nematodes should not bother them. Um, 
But if you don't, if you're not having anything particular that you're treating for, uh, the the only two things that I tell people where you need to use the beneficial nematodes proactively, if you have a tick issue, you have to put the nematodes down in January when the ticks are down at ground level. If you have a thrips issue, and that's going to affect mainly roses and some different flowering plants, you have to put your nematodes down January, February um, to get the them while they're still in the larval state. But Unless you are fighting a specific issue like squash vine borers or wireworms and potatoes or something like that, I'd skip the beneficial nematodes. I don't think you need them. I think that's an expense you don't need. And you'll be absolutely certain that you're not protecting those guys with the <laughs> with that job that nobody else would want to take on. <laughs> I can't say on the air what, how we refer to their jobs, but I'm sure you have a general idea. And anybody else yeah, who knows yeah. what dung beetles are, it's absolutely amazing how they can take a large manure pile, be it cow, dog, or donkey, and pretty soon it's all gone, and it's put yeah. into the soil uh, they're just real, real good little friends to have out there in the landscape. I'm with you, and there a lot of oh, different it's, species it's of them. Astounding. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, anyway, it's a completely different subject. But what, what my main concern is grasshoppers. Uh huh. Because I had a, um, not a, they didn't decimate things, but they 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 were harming things enough that I was starting to get pretty concerned. But I, I, I more or less made the decision just to let them live their life cycle because the beetles were more important to me. Well, you're not going to do much against grasshopper eggs in the ground anyway. They're pretty tough. What you need to do is uh, at some point go ahead and get a little bit of the bait that kills grasshoppers and nothing else. It's a bacteria called Nosema locustre. It's sold under the name of either Nolo or Semispore. And when the first little grasshoppers appear next spring... Put out your nolo bait, and the little grasshoppers eat it. It makes them sick, makes them stop feeding. The bigger grasshoppers, as they come along, eat the little grasshoppers, and it's just like a plague. Like the grasshoppers, the locusts can be a plague to us. The nosema is a plague to the grasshoppers, and it just spreads through the whole population, killing them slowly, and once they've ingested this bacteria, then they stop feeding, so they stop doing any damage whatsoever. The grasshopper control the uh, nolo bait in uh, early, well, early to late spring, whenever the grasshopper starts showing up. That's going to be your most effective control, and that will have zero effect on your dung beetles. Okay. All right. Perfect. Thank you very much. And I, like I said, I, will, it, will this temperature, will it kill the grasshoppers? Um, here, 35, 36? 35, 36 was- will slow them down, but it's not going to kill them. Um, we're going to have okay. to have a real freeze before that happens. And I was walking things yesterday. There was, you know, exactly. They were pretty slow. Tried yeah. to jump and end up laying <laughs> on their back, wiggling their legs. And I'm like, yeah, I hope you're uh, Yeah, and I, you, you will be after I place my foot on top of you. So uh, footprint of the gardener is a very effective tool for controlling when they start moving slowly. All right, sir. Well, yeah, that was my that was my question there. And I, after you had talked to the other caller about the beneficial nematodes, I just thought I would well, get a jingle and wonder if I needed to mix some of those in with the molasses and everything that I was going to put down. But don't think I'd I'll worry about on. it in your case. I think you've got uh, plenty of other things. Just be sure you have some uh, the Nosema locustri bait on hand early next spring. Grasshoppers should not become a problem for you next year. Okay. 
Thanks, John. Appreciate you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. All right. Jimmy's up next. Good morning, Jimmy. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling. Yes, real quickly, I just had two uh, questions. One, I wanted to know how you propagate coral vine. And second, for compost tea, does the local outlet make a a quality compost that I could use in a compost tea since I don't have any of my own made? Okay, well, let me take your first question. Well, let me take your second question first about compost tea. Compost tea is a two-step process, so to speak, and the first is to extract the existing bacteria, fungi, things like that from the compost. And the when you can get a multi-source compost, and New Earth probably, you know, because they're such a big company, they have access to lots and lots and lots of different feedstocks, and so you're going to get the greatest diversity of microbial life in one of these composts that has a lot of different things going into it, as opposed to something like mushroom compost or cotton burr compost or some of these composts that are made from a single feedstock, so to speak. So, yes, if your local folks are making a good um, compost, then you can, you know, you'll get a good start. And the second part of making compost tea, of course, is the so-called brewing process. We just put compost in water. We get a useful liquid called compost leachate, and it's certainly nothing wrong with that. But if we actually brew it, if we actually start bubbling air through it, if we add some stimulants, some other things to it, like liquid fish, like liquid seaweed, like a small amount of molasses. Um, when we make compost tea, we actually buy, and I don't even know what it all is in there, but a commercial product that uh, brings in just a ton of different micronutrients. Basically, any of the Medina products are going to be good to add a little bit to. But anyway, then we let it go through the 36 to 48-hour brewing process, and we get the very best compost tea possible out there. So uh, all compost tea is good. Some is better than others. But long answer to a short question, your uh, your local compost source should be a real good start. But feel free to add some of your own compost. Uh, feel free to add, you know, anything that's breaking down out there because there are different bacteria and fungi that decompose all the different things that are breaking down out there. And the more of those we incorporate into the compost, the greater the diversity of microbial life we're going to have in the compost tea. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. All right, sir. And repeat question number one for me. Got carried away on compost tea there. Yes, I was interested in the summer. I'm a beekeeper. Um using coral vine, and I was wondering how to propagate it. It is propagated two ways. It propagates relatively easily from cuttings, mature wood cuttings, late spring, um, early summer. If you have a real well-established clump of it, you can actually do, you can actually divide the crown. And, um, you know, when I first got in this business, that was a principal way that coral vine and tegonon, you know, whatever name you want to call it by, it was principally by dividing the bigger crowns, but you can also do very well if you're going to want to start very much of it. Uh, cutting should do very pretty well for you. You don't want that real soft tender tissue that starts coming out in March, but by about May, you should be able to harvest lots of uh, of rootable wood, so to speak. 
Thank you for your time, Bob. Always a pleasure. Which color of the coral vine do you grow, or do you grow them all? I grow the pink guy. Okay. There's also a beautiful white that is almost as vigorous. There is a newer pink one that starts blooming earlier. Um, and the only reason I'm telling you this is there's an old-fashioned pink that doesn't start blooming until August or so, and in this beautiful all fall. But if that's what you have, I wouldn't be propagating that. I would find one of the newer pinks that starts blooming in May because you obviously, whether you're doing it for the bees or whether you're doing it just for your own enjoyment, you want as long a bloom season as possible. So be sure if you're going to propagate it that you propagate the best strains out there and uh, you know propagate from those ones that start blooming in uh, late May or June so you've got an extra two to three months to produce things for your bees. Thank you for your time again. Always a pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning, Jimmy. I appreciate it. Okay, to the phone lines, Terry's first. Good morning, Terry. Um, good morning, Bob. How oh, are you? I'm doing well. How about you this morning? Uh, fighting a cold, but doing very well. Thank you for asking. <laughs> well, there are worse things than colds <laughs> going around, so uh, uh, you know the old drill. More vitamin C than you can imagine, and pretty soon it'll be gone. Exactly. Thank you. Um, first of all, I just had a statement. You asked me to kind of call you back a while back when I asked you about my elephant ears. Right. And, um, darn it, they were planted upside down. Um, so <laughs> I <laughs> switched them around and voila, um, they were just absolutely fine. Well, good. Very good. Um, the other question um, that I wanted to ask you, actually, too, I'm trying to think about um, plantings that I want to do along the fence line. Um, I'm not real crazy about the Nandina that is back there, but I was just wondering if maybe you might have some other um, recommendations for, you know, great plantings along the fence line. Shade or sun? Um a lot of sun back there. Okay. Um, and how tall do the plants? How tall do the plants need to grow? Well, my um, fence is six feet, mm-hmm. um, so I would say just right under that. Um, right. Well, you have a lot of different choices. Uh, of course, the the compact Nandina is one choice. Um, there are some beautiful viburnums, uh, one of the most hardy viburnums, and one of the most deer tolerant. I don't know if that's an issue or not, but uh, the so-called Sandanqua viburnum is an uh, evergreen shrub with very few problems, and it's going to top out about five feet. Uh, if you have plenty of sun and you want flowers, uh, there are a bunch of different varieties of what we call Abelia, A-B-E-L-I-A, and these tend to bloom, most of them white. They're evergreen plants. They are somewhat spreading but uh, I would get the compact forms. The old standard uh, abelia can grow eight feet taller, taller. But the compacts grow to about four to five feet. And they're, like I say, they're a bunch of different ones. Some of them have variegated foliage. Some of them have, you know, a solid green foliage. But they all tend to bloom either light pink or white flowers pretty much all summer long. Hummingbirds love them. Butterflies love them. And people love them. And as long as they get good sun, they're very dependable bloomers, evergreen plants with very, very few problems. So I would certainly consider them as one option. Um, There are some, I think they're boring, but, you know, in the right space, boxwood 
Uh, I've got boxwood plants that I suspect are 80 or 90 years old in front of my home. So gives you an idea of their longevity. And I water them about twice a year, whether they need it or not. So if you're looking for something really hardy and trouble-free, um, they, you know, they are attractive. And if you've got if you've got nice-looking nandinas back there, but you're just not crazy about them, you might actually think about just taking out some of them and mixing in some other things that would add a little bit of interest uh, back there. And, um, uh, golly, uh, thinking of other things, you'll have to prune it periodically. But uh, right. Pittosporum is about as hardy a plant as I can possibly imagine. Uh, there are some beautiful flowering perennials like the salvia gregii, which is evergreen. Not going to get to six feet tall, but that could be a secondary, you know, plant in front. You could plant basically a green shrub like the boxwood or uh, something behind and then plant salvia gregii in front of it. That's going to bloom eight or nine months out of the year. Then there are some deciduous salvias like all the Garanitica and the Farinaceas, and those would give you lots of color, as would Plumbago. And you could just, you know, kind of have a nice green background and have an incredible flower show in front of them. So that's, you know, still another option. Um, if you're into a little bit more xeric plants, there are some uh, beautiful new varieties of the Sinisa, the so-called purple sage, although there's a pure white one. There's a lavender one called Lowry's Legacy. Um, there's some things like that. If you wanted something that may freeze down, but will come right back, there are some, uh, compact Esperanzas now that are in the oranges and kind of gold tones and don't get giant like the old common yellow one does. And they're going to give you flowers for nine or 10 months out of the year. I can, I can think of lots of pretty things to do along that fence. Well, that is definitely um, some great um, uh, suggestions, so thank you. Um, my last question is, in the front yard, I have St. Augustine, mm -hmm. and there is a part of that in my driveway, and it just drives me absolutely batty. The, the rest of the yard is just absolutely green and lush, and, you know, I use the growing green on it. But there is probably about a three by five patch that just is brown as can be. <laughs> and I don't know what's going on with it. I don't think it's where, you know, um, anyone or puppies have peed on it or anything like that. It just is brown. And I have done everything I know how to do. Um, would you have any suggestions on that? Are you watering with a sprinkler system or how do you water? Oh, no. I, I water the old-fashioned way. I have a little sprinkler that I move okay. from. <laughs> and, you're, and you're sure this area is getting enough water? I think so. I, you know, I, I pay a lot of attention to that area mm -hmm. when I am watering, for sure. Um, but it seems like sometimes it'll, you know, you think it's starting to turn green, and then all of a sudden it's brown again. <laughs> so, you know, I... I would go dig a little test hole, so to speak, in the middle of it and see okay. if they, when they poured your driveway, see if they left a bunch of concrete or mortar or see if there's, you know, rock in this area just below the surface. I, my suspicion is that there is something there that is keeping the St. Augustine from getting a good root system down into the ground. And so it browns out uh, primarily in the summer months, primarily when it gets hot and dry. 
And I I go dig myself a little six inch round hole, eighteen inches deep, and see what I find. And it may take somebody with a strong back to come in there and dig out whatever is there. But I'll bet you've got something just below the surface of the soil, be it stuff that the people who poured the original driveway dumped over there or whatever. But uh, the rest of your St. Augustine is beautiful. There's no reason that shouldn't be, too, if the grass could get some good roots down. I know Howard Garrett uh, makes a – he does a probe with just a sawed-off shaft of a golf club that he can take out there and then just press down into the soil and see what he hits. But I think you've got something below the surface of the soil there that's just impeding your grass growth. And even though it may be a little work, Terry, I'm going to – I'm going to suggest either you or get somebody that can to go dig up a little area and see what you find underneath that brown grass. Okay, well, um, I would like to do that because it just, I mean, it's the only area, and I thought, well, okay, I'll just dig. I was actually going to just dig that portion up and, I don't know, make a feature on that corner sure. where it is. Well, figure out, what's under there, figure out what's under there first, and we can talk about different okay. things you could do with it. Okay, fantastic. Well, as always, thank you so much for your time. You know, it's always a pleasure, and I'm sure we'll talk again, and I'll get Jane in here for the next break. Good morning, Jane. Hey, Bob. I got a couple of quick questions. Okay. One, um, a week or so ago, you told me exactly what to do when I was trying to prepare some areas for some new planting by cutting the stuff to ground level and then cover it right. with a couple of inches of compost. Right. Now, the thing I didn't write down is I was wondering, should I water that in or not? Well, Mother Nature's been pretty kind to us the past week with some moisture. And, uh, yes, water is good because it activates a lot of things that are in the compost, carries them, leaches them down into the soil to improve that soil. But I suspect nature's done everything you it you know needs to be done. I think you're probably pretty close to being ready to plant. Okay, well, I haven't gotten to do all of that, so ah. I will, when I get to do it, though, I should just judge, and if it ain't very moist, then, well, actually, you, I think I should put a little water in oh, definitely. as appropriate. Yeah. I, I think that would be a very good idea. Okay, now my second question is going to help the whole world, and you give this recipe, but I couldn't write it down. That recipe for the for the tea that you that you make in order to fight off the... Ask Juniper uh, fever. <laughs> sure. Okay, this time of year, you want to make your stock solution, so to speak. You want to take, oh, roughly a cup of uh, chopped up leaves from one of the juniper trees. It uh, doesn't matter whether it's male or female. You want to take about a quart of water and boil that water. And while the water is boiling, take it off the off the heating element and dump your uh, dump your juniper leaves in there and let it steep just like you were brewing some tea. Let it steep for probably an hour or so, then dispose of the juniper parts. You have now created your your stock solution of this this elixir that's going to help you on a daily basis. Take somewhere between an eyedropper full and a tablespoon of that. Mix it with something that tastes a little bit better and drink it. Your body starts building the antibodies that will work against the uh, allergens in the cedar pollen. And um, you just make, make your stock solution and have a bit of it every day for two or three weeks. Many, many people have told me that it is, you know, 95% reduced their, uh, their cedar fever symptoms in the spring when it really gets bad. 
Okay, I was writing it down real fast, so I'm going to read back to you what I think I understand, okay? Okay. One cup of chopped up leaves. Uh Uh-huh. A quart of water that you boil. You boil and you put the leaves in, not while it's still on the stove, but after you take it off, then you dump the leaves. You don't want to boil the leaves. You want the leaves to sit there in the hot water for a little while and steep. That's correct. Okay. So you just bring that quart to a boil, then you take that off, and then you add them leaves, let it steep for an hour or so. Right. Then you then you strain off them AGA leaves, and then you take on a daily basis, you're going to take an eyedropper to a tablespoon. You're going to mix it with something like, what, eight ounces of water or something? Water or Kool-Aid or, you know, or something that gives it a little bit better flavor. I mean, it's not horrible, but I don't want you to dread having to take your daily dose of uh, juniper juice, so to speak. So I get a little product at uh, um, uh, Natural Grocers. I'm trying to remember the name, but it's it's like an electrolyte that tastes pretty darn good, and it really does good things to hydrate you as well. I'm sure the gals up front and guys can tell you what it is, but anything that makes it taste a little better. And, and then about eight ounces of a glass of that. Sure. Okay. Well, that now I got the recipe, and everybody else has had plenty of time to write it down and listen to us review it. And I appreciate Thank it, you. Jane. You're sure welcome. All right, back to the phone lines. It's CJ's turn. Good morning, CJ. Yes, sir. Uh, I wanted to know about two plants that grow in the shade. Okay. One's that's one's called Aspidistrius. Can you get that at Shades of Green? You certainly can. Several different forms. Uh, it will not take any hot sun, but it will grow in pretty deep shade. The common name right, is cast. Beautiful, beautiful yeah. broadleaf. Yeah, and it's called cast iron plant. That's how tough it is. Um, we try to keep it in stock, and um, uh, I would call first because we had somebody came in and bought about 50 of them the other day, but I think we've gotten restocked on them, but it's a plant we normally keep all the time, and most nurseries do. It's a wonderful plant. Aspidistrius, you call, is it called Aspidistrius? It's called Aspidistra or cast iron plant, two names for the same okay. thing. Okay, okay. And one more plant, final question, <laughs> Dr. Webster. I, I appreciate you taking my call. I'm Certainly. sorry, I was quite surprised. Um, the other one is, it comes from South America, and all I know is it tastes like licorice. It yeah. also grows in the shade, mm-hmm. and you can wrap chicken in it. It tastes right. delicious. It's called Oja Santo. And um, we keep it, but it's the wrong time of year because it's going to freeze down in the winter. That's something you want to look for and plant about March or April. Okay. Ohasato. Oha. H-O-J-A-S-A-N-T-O. And is it called by any other name? Um, root beer plant is a common name for it. Root beer. Yeah. Great, great, great. Dr. Webster, love your show. Appreciate your service. I your knowledge and your time. Thank I appreciate you, your call, CJ. You have a wonderful weekend. Bottom line, we start with Roy. Good morning, Roy. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Uh, it's just another great morning. How about yourself? Pretty good. I'm I'm fine. Thank you. A little chilly again this morning. Yeah, at least none of that frosty stuff around today, at least where I live. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bob, I'm wanting to plant some trees for shade trees, kind of on the edge of a field. Okay. A driveway. Uh, here about, oh, say, four years ago, I bought two bur oaks, and I think they're two Monterey oaks. The bur oaks died right away. Okay. And the Monterey oaks, I put cattle panel around them, but some of the cattle reached over the top and ate the leaves and ate the tops off of them. So they're still there, but they're not tall, and they just look scraggly and not going anywhere. Uh, would it be best just dig those out and put some 
new ones in there because they don't have a defined top, if you will. You know, the, the ones that are there. Well, I don't. You know, I'd I'd stick with those trees. I would definitely increase the protection around them. Maybe a little bit of electric fence or something like that. But Roy, they've got a they've got the they've got a great root system, and a pair of pruning shears will turn them from a bush back into a tree. So I'm not opposed to planting some additional trees, but uh, those trees have spent a couple of years growing roots, and so you tell them the direction you want to go and promise them that nobody's going to chew on them, and they will okay. become trees. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not going to give up two years' worth of growth. Now, Monterey is a very good oak, and of course, it's resistant to live oak or to live oak or oak wilt, which hits live oaks and red oaks. But uh, uh, there are, and you don't have any problem getting water to the area. No, I've got uh, it, it's a good way from the house, but I've got one of those 250 gallons water tanks that I sure. Fill and then I just let run real slow around and soak up, you know. Very good. Uh, the ground is, I mean, that black dirt, real heavy, and particularly to the south end, the water naturally drains that way. That stays wet a little more than anything, so it's pretty heavy. So I don't know if there are trees that would be better that could take the wet more than uh, some of the others. My two top choices would be Mexican sycamore. It's one of the fastest growing trees out there. I mean, you can have a 30-foot tree in five years with uh, Mexican sycamore. All these things, of course, are going to have to have cow and deer protection, of course, but you've learned that the hard way. But Mexican sycamore will tolerate wet feed. In fact, its native place to grow is along streams and rivers and things like that. And there is uh, a variety of cypress, which we call Montezuma cypress. looks pretty much like bald cypress. But the Montezuma cypress is faster growing, it's semi-evergreen, and it only lives about 3,000 years. So uh, it's going to be a fairly long-term tree, but it will tolerate uh, the wet feet. It doesn't, unlike the bald cypress, it doesn't need a great deal of water, but uh, it will certainly tolerate the water. So uh, Mexican sycamore, Monterey cypress, or uh, or, I'm sorry, Montezuma cypress uh, are going to be my two choices for that wet end. Okay, real good. Another thing, I've got a terrible problem with nut grass, nut sedge, or I call it nut scourge, <laughs> uh, in my garden. Yeah. And uh, got the molasses, that really it just seems like that fertilizes it, doesn't do any good. Now, I've got two sections that I that I solarized. I put plastic on there back in first part of May, I think. So obviously, if it's going to kill it, it would have killed it by now. I haven't taken it back off. Mm-hmm. But when I do put uh, compost or something on there to uh, yeah. bring the soil back. Compost or compost tea to put that life back in the soil. The one thing that I will tell you, and it took old Malcolm Beck to convince me, is it nut sedge or nut scourge. I think that's a great new line I made. I I won't always get the first ten times I tell somebody that I'll tell you Roy said that and after that it'll be mine as Bruce Dooley used to say, but it's it's not a problem it's not harming anything that grows and old Malcolm told me the best looking field of corn he had ever seen in his life was growing in just a sea of that plant so it's it doesn't look especially good we would like to be rid of it i'll tell you how i got rid of it and granted this was a limited area but a flower bed along the fence in my yard and this was before i lived full-time up in the country didn't have a lot of time i piled about six inches of mulch on top of the area around the base of these shrubs and it's like that nutsedge came up 
through the mulch, and I would go and I would very carefully pull up one plant, and it would pull up every plant, you know, in about a one-foot radius around it. And about two months of, uh, you know, of just going out once a week or so and pull things up, I was rid of it because it's like all the nuts edge at ground level just kind of moved up. All of its new plant lists that it formed were up, you know, at the top. And, um, again, it was a small investment, about 10 minutes a week of my time to do it. But I totally eliminated it from the bed in that way. So that's something else to consider. Well, sure try that. The bad thing is it gets so thick that you can't pull a fur to do a row or you can't only dig to put a plant or or take a hole and put a berm around a plant or anything. Yeah, um, I know what you mean. I get in there with a grubbing hoe is one of my preferred tools of choice. And uh, yeah. But it's uh, given a choice, I'd rather have nutsheds than Bermuda. But I, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, we, if the Bermuda and, and Nutsedge both would grow half as well in the other places as to in our beds, you know, it'd be a real good thing. Right. But, uh, um, try, try a little bit have more heavy mulching on there and, um, uh, on your area that you solarized, hopefully, um, you're going to pretty much eliminate it from that area and just a little compost, a little compost. He's going to put all the life back into the soil. And, uh, if you have just a little sprout up here or there, go after it with the mulch and all, and, and you should have it totally under control. Okay. Sounds very good. All right. Thank you, Bob, as always, for the information. Always a, always a pleasure to talk to you, Roy. You have a great weekend. And, uh, let's see here in order, Smitty, Kim and Barbara and Tim. So Kim with a K is up next. Good morning, Kim. Hi, Bob. It's good to talk to you finally. It's good to talk um, to you. Um, I have a question about my um, Arbicania olive tree. All right. Um, it is in a pot. Um, I got, um, and it's not very big, but I actually got 21 little tiny olives off of it this year, <laughs> which I was so proud of myself about. Very <laughs> good. You should be. Anyway, yeah, so I soaked them, and now they're in their kind of seasoning um, olive oil and vinegar solution, so I'm kind of excited about that, about trying them. Um, of course, they're mainly all pit, but that's okay. You know, I'm, I am I get excited about just doing these small little things. So. Sure, sure. Um, but I wanted to ask you um, how I can improve that um, for next year. What should I be doing to it now or maybe in the spring or something to improve the crop? Are you here in san antonio i am uh uh-huh yes okay well i'd plant it in the ground i think it's gonna be it'll grow faster and bigger unless you want to keep moving it into a larger container but any plant in my opinion is easiest to maintain in the ground because as it spreads its roots out it's going to be a little more forgiving if kim takes a vacation or she somehow is forced to neglect it for a little while so i it would be easier to maintain in the ground but put it in a sunny spot and basically water and fertilize arbicania is one of our olive trees that produces at a pretty young age compared to mission or some of the others that will grow well here sometimes it will go into a cycle of alternate bearing where you're going to have a super heavy crop one year and then a lighter crop the next year. And that right. seems to be just typical of Arbicania. And I don't think Sandy Winokur's figured any way around that. And Sandy knows more about olive trees than anybody in the area. But, uh, um, you know, Sandy Oaks Olive Orchard is her place. And I, that's, right. I think that's the same advice she would give you. But plenty of sun, plenty of water, plenty of fertilizer and um, okay. do, and I'm not 
sure. I suspect what you're doing is is fine as far as preparing the olives, but they do have to be treated in some way. Many people do just what's called brining them with salt water. But uh, right. olives are not edible to be picked off the tree. In fact, I'm told that uh, our forces in Italy, that the soldiers, if they had somebody they really didn't like, they'd tell them to go pick some olives off that tree and eat them, and they would be <laughs> sick as a dog for the next 36 hours from having done so. So follow your recipes and be sure you're brining properly so that you really do get to enjoy those olives. I did. I soaked Good. them for about two months in the salt water. Okay. Um, okay. And so, and then I just kind of tasted just a tiny bit of it, and it did taste like, you know, an olive should, but it was just not flavorful. So that's well, I'll be interested in, in other flavoring. I'll things. be interested yeah. in hearing how your flavored olives yeah. work out. That sounds yeah. great. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, it's I. I'm in a rent house, so I don't really want to put it in the ground. Okay. So I'm probably just going to get a bigger pot. For how it. how um, big I, is your how big is your plant now? How tall? How wide? Um, it's probably about three and a half, four feet. Um, tall and it's you know the the branches spread out so much i would say it's maybe at least three feet wide on some of the branches i'd be looking so, yeah. at about a 10 gallon container about a 14 okay. 15 okay. inch pot and okay great okay that's what i'll do then. the pot yeah. can be made out of anything if you choose a heavier you know ceramic or terracotta mm-hmm. pot it'll be less likely to blow over if you choose a plastic right. pot it'll be a lot cheaper and the plant won't really mm-hmm. care yeah. Okay. Okay. Does compost uh, put a little compost on? Does that help at all? Oh, sure. Sure. In a okay. pot, it's okay. not going to have the profound effects that it will in the soil, but little mm-hmm. compost on the surface is just adding more microbial life to the soil, and that's mm-hmm. never a bad thing. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you. Well, that was my question for today. Thanks a lot, Bob. I appreciate all you do for us. It's a pleasure, Kim. I appreciate the call this morning. Thank uh-huh. you. Bye. Goodbye. I'm going to push that one right there and say good morning, Barbara. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, <clears throat> hi. I was able to get compost on my yard uh, before the rain. Oh, fantastic. I want to know about, yeah, that was, you know, it's more of a job than I realized. But anyway, that's okay. <laughs> Depends <laughs> on the size of your yard. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the problem because uh, my yard wasn't so bad, but now I've got to go do some work at my mom's. Anyway, the question is, she's got grass spurs. She's down in the sandy soil uh-huh. down in Pearsall. And I've heard you say to put compost on the grass burrs, but I'm assuming you mean to, like, cover them up thick? Not especially thick. When I did the part in my yard that grass burrs were were just a carpet, I probably put maybe three-eighths, maybe a half an inch thick. Not, Not super thick, but just pretty much what you probably put on your yard. And oh really? Okay. Yeah, and I don't know. Encourage them. <laughs> and, well, it sure didn't in mine, and I don't know whether it's the humic acids. I'm not sure exactly what it is in the compost, but I kid you not, I went from ten thousand grass burrs to probably pulling three the entire year there, and uh, it was just like I'm magic. Hoping. Yeah, I'm well. I will yeah. certainly look forward to hearing back from you. Certainly yeah, hope it works yeah, as well for I, you as for me. But go ahead. It, it's funny. It just grows along the sidewalk and the driveway. Like, I guess it's drip line somewhere. I don't know. But, I mean, they're not all over the yard, but uh-huh. they really, I mean, you know, they get in your socks and your sh- shoelaces. And, oh, it's horrible. That's, we call them anyway. a, a pain okay. in the grass. And, uh, <laughs> yes, 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 yeah, yes. they What it is about grass burrs, if you've ever pulled one up, they've got a really lousy root system. They are 
they are among the weakest grasses out there, and Mother Nature sows them around in in the worst part of the yard, wherever it's getting the least water, wherever you're less likely to have any other grass grow, whether it's a native grass or, you know, grass that you have planted. The grass birds are always going to show up in the part uh, just to cover the soil. Mother Nature hates bare soil. And they are really wimpy plants, and that's why Bermuda chokes them out, St. Augustine chokes them out, and they're going to pick the areas that are the hottest, the driest, the the place just where nothing else wants to grow. And that's why they're showing up, you know, in these little, what would normally be kind of problematic spots in your yard. And it's why it's so easy to get rid of them, you know, when you do something like add the compost, because you're making, you're not only eliminating the grass burrs, but you're changing the texture, you're changing the quality of the soil to a uh, to something where your other grass is going to move in as the grass burrs move out. So it's it's just okay. a win-win situation. Good. Well, that's what we're going to try. Next question. We've got some red oak trees down there that, uh, oh, they're about 15 years old. They're really tall now. But a few of the lower limbs, it's hard for me to get under to mow. I mean, I'm always having to duck. Sure. Um, so, so what's a good time of the year to trim those? Uh, Any time you want to do it. Just be sure really? that, okay. be sure that you, it, it's yeah. a three-step process. Uh, the first cut is made to take all the weight off the limb because the last thing you want is to be cutting two-thirds of the way through and all of a sudden the limb falls and tears the bark down the side of the tree. So mm-hmm. make your first cut, you know, a foot or 18 inches away from the trunk to take the weight off. And then look very carefully where the limb comes out from the trunk of the tree. And you're going to see kind of a little raised area. It's like a little collar all the way around the uh, around the limb, and we call this the branch, B-R-E-N-C-H, the branch collar, and we want to cut just beyond that because this branch collar contains tissue that will very quickly seal over, and two years from now, even a, a wound that's two inches in diameter, you probably won't even be able to see because it's grown new bark totally over it. So step one, take the weight off. Step, step two, cut just beyond the branch collar, and step three is be sure you seal the wound. It doesn't have to be pruning paint. Pruning paint is commonly used, but even just old latex paint, I wouldn't necessarily recommend fluorescent orange. But uh, anything that will seal that wound for 10 days or so uh, to be sure that oak wilt cannot enter through that uh, wound. Right. Because yeah. uh, they found the beetles that carry the oak wilt. They did some research, I think it was in North Carolina, in a windstorm, they tagged and released some beetles, and uh, they had moved 14 miles away by the end of the day in the wind. So even though you're sitting in a spot where you don't know there's any oak wilt around, just to be on the safe side, I'm still going to paint every wound every time on red oaks and oh, on live yeah. oaks. I've got I've got the, the tree wound Excellent. already that I used in my Excellent. house. Okay, last, last question. Bougainvillea, I've got a huge one, and last year I trimmed it down. After the first freeze, uh, and kept it covered, you know, and I mulched it real heavy, and it came back, and it was still huge this summer. <laughs> now I know we had that light freeze night before last. Right. I, it looked fine yesterday. It didn't look like any leaves were burned. When's a good time to trim that bougainvillea? Whenever you want to. You know, really? okay. it's any time you trim a bougainvillea, you're going to lose flowers. And this is a mm-hmm. time of year when bougainvillea are typically spectacular with their flowering. 
So if it were me, I'm going to put it off as long as possible. But mm-hmm. um, by the same token, uh, they are not totally cold hardy. They look terrible with a cold wind, but they're not really hurt. But the leaves will be damaged by actual frost. So I'm going to put off the pruning as long as possible. But if I'm getting ready to take a two-week vacation, I'm probably going to prune it beforehand uh, and cover it, just anticipating that you know there may be some cold weather. It's one of the things I'm going to talk about in my seminar this morning, that with some of the row cover fabrics and things, they let enough light through that you can actually leave them on all winter. It's not something you have to go put on and off and on and off and on and off. It's something that can be put on once and, you know, not taken off till next spring. But uh, to your question is when to prune, put it off as long as you can. But, you know, don't, if we're going to have a hard freeze, if we're going to have a heavy frost, uh, prune them enough that you can cover them. Yeah, I was going to say, that's one of my, I'm like, I can cover it without trimming it. I, I, I misunderstood what you were saying, just, you know, put cover over it. I'm like, oh, all right. You can, oh, if you uh, can cover it without trimming it, oh, but the way you're talking it. Yeah, but this, it's four by, it's big, it's over, exactly. it's taller than I am, and yeah. yeah. <laughs> Much more trouble to cover a big plant than a small plant, that's for sure. True, true. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Bob. That's great. Good to talk to you, Barbara. Have a wonderful weekend. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Certainly. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, next up is going to be Tim. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Bob. Morning, uh, sir. Question about when is your uh, greenhouse talk going to be? Is this weekend or next this, weekend? No, 945 this morning. This morning, okay, yeah, right. and I'm going to be talking. I've brought in some of the Eco Vantage wood and a little sample of some of the Bywall Polycarbonate. And I'm going to start off talking about uh, covering, uh, short of building a greenhouse, and talk about temporary covering, and then talk about the right materials, and talk about okay, you want a greenhouse for summertime only, you want a year-round greenhouse. Anyway, that's what we're going to do at 9:45 this morning. Okay, well, I just wanted to verify the date, so I appreciate it very much. Thank well, you. we'll look forward. The coffee will be on by 9. We'll start the seminar right around 945, so look forward to seeing you. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> Bye. Goodbye. Tony's up first. Good morning, Tony. Bob, enjoy your show. Good well, thank you. you. Uh, good morning hey, to you as well. I have a lot of fun as well, as you can probably tell. <laughs> you know, it does look like you really enjoy this, and it's good to we can do what we like to do in life sometimes. Amen to that. Yeah, so it seems like I had to be uh, over 50 to figure that one out sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figured it out early on, and uh, the only thing I'll say age has done for me is just to confirm that I made the right decision. Yeah, well, I enjoy your store. I can tell. It's a beautiful place. Thank you. Green. Hey, so uh, Plumeria, wow, I've been growing one for I figure eight years alongside my swimming pool, and it never got above, I don't know, uh, shoulder, uh, not even shoulder high, chest high. And I got used to watching 10 leaves a year on it, and every now and then it would bloom. Uh-huh. I thought that was great. And then I planted it at a friend's house in a bunch of leaf litter. Okay. Oh, my gosh. It took <laughs> off. I have never seen something so beautiful. Very good. So what happened? Well, you it got, number one, the soil was a little cooler. Uh, it probably got a little bit more consistent moisture. It undoubtedly found all sorts of nutrients in that leaf litter that it wasn't used to. 
it's like, you know, I've been living on bread and water, you know, closed up in a little, uh, you know, one-room shack for my entire life, and all of a sudden I moved over to a luxurious resort, and I get three meals a day, and I get everything I need to, you know, absolutely flourish. And um, so the only bad news is that it can't stay there over the winter months unless you're willing to build a greenhouse over the top of it, which I would teach you how to do this morning if you want to do that. But uh, a lot of people actually plant them in the ground for the summer because they grow and bloom so well and then dig them up and take them inside for the winter months and start all over again the next spring, planting them back outside. Right. Yeah, I brought her. I bring it in every uh, I try to do it every, you know, first week of October because you just never know. Right. And uh, so about mid-October, I brought her in. But, oh, my gosh, yes, she found what she liked to eat. I don't know what it was. Didn't ever bloom, though. That was kind of weird. But but uh, really, really grew like I never knew. Well, again, uh, part of the key is sunlight. A little bit has to do with maturity. I mean, once plants reach physiological maturity, they tend to bloom much more heavily. But uh, there's no such thing as too much sun for a plumeria. And uh, uh, you obviously just found the sweet spot for it at your friend's place. Yeah, but I want to bring it back home next year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, just don't let it freeze in the meantime. That's the main thing, Tony. Yeah. Hey. I meant, if you have a second, I mentioned regenerative uh, agriculture to you a week or two ago. Right. And uh, I talked to a farmer in a, up north, and I think I made a decision. He said, if you have horse-quality hay, mm-hmm. don't, unless you want to just change, but if you want the horse-quality hay, you can't or shouldn't go and, and plant you know, all these good things. Because you will not have horse quality hay in the end. That's what he's learned. He's a farmer up north, and uh, he does regenerative in parts of his pastures. Mm-hmm. And uh, but his horse quality hay, he says, unfortunately, to please the horse people, you can't have anything in it. Well, and that's that's true, and that's mainly because horse people you know, many times are sort of, uh, and I don't mean this across the board, but some of them are what I'd call drugstore cowboys, that they're all, they're so into their horses and their clothes and their their style of riding and everything else that they're they're not my friend that I have hot-branded cattle with that, you know, has been a cowboy for 40 years. Um, and they're just a little different people. But if you want a pure strain Unfortunately, to achieve that, they end up spraying all sorts of nasty chemicals on there that are really bad for the horses, but it sure does make for pretty hay. But uh, I just, you know, a lot of these, the picklerams and a lot of these, as what we call sulfonated urea herbicides out there, just they don't ever go away. Once they're in the soil, they're always going to be there and they're going to create problems for a lot of things you want to do. So, um, everybody has their own way of doing it, but, um, um, you know, again, uh, and the guy I buy from, he has cow hay and he has horse hay. And the only difference is horse hay is a little bit more expensive and a little prettier, but, uh, just, you just, what everybody needs to be really careful of is just the chemicals that are, they're using to make that really pretty hay. And, um, uh, you know, you watch those horses out in the field and they're not as picky about what they eat. Right, exactly. 
Bob, thank you very much. Have a great day. You do the same, Tony. It's good to talk to you, and I'll get Kim in next. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I, I just uh, have a couple of questions. Just I'm down here um, near Galveston, so okay. just kind of know with my questions. Um, the, I've been um, reading some stuff on cinnamon, and mm-hmm. I've used cinnamon in the past to like as a fungicide, like on my cuttings, right. on plumerias when I cut them off and kind of dip the end, you know, the the 45 degree angle, put that, put it on the plant itself, and then you know when I'm drying them out, I'll I'll dip the end and and let them callus over with the cinnamon. Well, recently I've been reading um, that you can, obviously cinnamon has a lot of uses, or so I'm reading, and I just was going to kind of get your take on, um, someone said it was really also good to mix it in the soil. Um, what would be the benefit of that, and why Why would it work? What well, is the cinnamon doing? The cinnamon is, uh, works strongly against some of the more serious bacterial infections out there and what i have always used cinnamon for uh we get like a fusarium rot uh and there's some bacterial some fungicidal rots but uh it would be like a crown rot in phalaenopsis or just a soft brown rot and lots of different things and cinnamon seems to be the best thing in the world to control those now i've never heard of mixing it with the soil but uh, I may make a note to uh, ask Howard Garrett uh, about other uses for for cinnamon and, and get his take on it. But there are a lot of things that, uh, you know, that I would not be mixing into the soil because they may be antimicrobial uh, with some of the things that are good. And I don't specifically know. You know, there are things like trichoderma, which is a natural fungus that only seems to target damaging fung- fungus, and it does not harm the beneficial fungi so i honestly don't know if cinnamon has that same property but uh most of the uses that i've used cinnamon for over the years are getting rid of the kind of rots that sometimes set in if a plant gets too cold you know people leave something out and uh the tissue starts to decompose and then you get a you know an anaerobic decomposing agent in there and the whole thing just turns to mush and cinnamon seems to help cauterize that and you know stop the progress but i have to say i'm not aware of a lot of other uses but uh we got a lot more to study and a lot more to learn about that i i can't answer your question as well as i would like to because okay. i just don't know that much yet okay and that, yeah and the conversation came up when we were talking about uh, rooting cuttings uh-huh. and so not necessarily i guess all dirt but um it was like mix in cinnamon in the soil where you, when you're making your 50% perlite, 50% um, cactus soil, and then maybe like a fourth of a cup of cinnamon. And for some reason, that would help it not rot while it's <laughs> Well, I have to tell you, sometimes, okay, well, I, sometimes I think plants root or do well in spite of what you do rather than because of what you do and before i would be convinced with that i'm going to have to have one pot with the cinnamon or two or three pots with the cinnamon and two or three pots without just to see if there really is a difference but i've seen people attribute good happenings to a number of things where i fully believe that they would have happened whether or not they had added that specific ingredient it's kind of like snake bite um you know, you hear many, many different remedies uh, among old-timers for bites from rattlesnakes and things like that. And, yeah, you know, he drank a gallon of whiskey, and, 
you know, did all these other things. Well, the truth of the matter is, and I've done a lot of works with snakes and rattlesnakes over the years, including my time in West Texas, but probably a fairly high percentage of the time, it was what's called a dry bite. It takes a conscious effort on the part of the snake to inject the venom. And if you've stepped on a snake, if you've really surprised a snake, chances are you didn't get any venom in that bite to begin with. And so people are giving all this credit to something that, you know, would have happened anyway, whether they did it or not. So I'm not saying that's the case with cinnamon, but I'm still, you're going to have to show me side by side that it really improves things. Okay. Well, I was just wondering if you knew what the, what the reasoning was. I have one, one more quick question. Go right ahead. Um, the, I planted my, this is like the worst my tomatoes have ever done. And I, in most, and all of them are, um, small uh, juliets and cherries and sweet 100s there but they um they didn't and i actually put them in i guess like the end of mid-july and of course it was really really hot and of course now it's gotten cooler um is it worth keeping them in the ground they're starting to get a few flowers on them now or should i just take them out because now the nights have just well, your short. chances of getting much from your big fruited tomatoes are pretty low. Your sweet 100s, your Juliet's, your Sun Gold, they have the potential That's to produce some more if the weather does stay warm. My answer is, if you're not planning to plant anything else there, go ahead and leave them. You've got nothing to lose. Uh, if you're leaving them there but not planting your broccoli and cauliflower and spinach and all those other wonderful things I love to grow in the fall, I would say rip them out and plant something that's going to give you some good production. But if this is a part of the garden that you're not anxious to get anything else planted in, by all means, leave them. You've already put all the work into them, and maybe they produce, maybe they don't, but you've got nothing to lose. So uh, it's kind of, I would say, depends on how big your garden is. In my case, well, I've got a lot. big, but I have already put my greens in. Okay. Same, same answer for the um, shishito peppers? Same answer, exactly. Uh, it's just... Okay. You know, I don't do now weather. They do well, and they have done well. But And I know next week we're supposed to be back at 70 all week long. So. Exactly. It may be that way up until New Year's Day, but uh, this is Texas. You just never know. Okay. I just was, yeah. So so these these flowers that are on still do have an opportunity. They will. Because all of mine are the small ones, the three that you yeah. made, actually. Yeah. So, okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, and I'll do a little research on not. cinnamon and see what I guess I'll mm-hmm. find out for you, Kim. I'll, I'll listen when you're talking to Howard Garrett and see what he has to say. Sounds great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so many, so many different things to learn, so many different things to know, and we're just always experimenting and learning. Good morning, Tracy. Good morning. I'm so glad I got through today. Me too. How can uh, I help? Okay, this is one kind of complicated question and one simple question. The okay. complicated one is how does how do plants get their nutrition during dormancy and when and how do you get them to go into it? Well, not all plants have a dormant season and most plants that go truly dormant get very little new additional nutrition during that season. Um, You feed, when you're putting down fertilizers and things like that, you're basically feeding the microbial life in the soil, which improves the soil, and those microbes convert some things into products that the plants can use. But basically, plants spend the dormant season living on sugars and things that they have stored 
during the active growing season. Now, there's some new research out there showing that through the exchange of materials through mycorrhizal fungi, that plants may be getting some help from their neighbors, but that research is just in its infancy. But not all plants have a dormant season. Tropical plants really have no dormant seasons. Some plants have dormant seasons that are introduced by drought. Others have dormant seasons that are introduced by cold. So it's a very complex question, and the answer would vary from plant to plant. Okay, plumeria, for instance, I've heard you talk about that being stored bare root in the garage. And you're just forcing it into a dormant period with drought. And um, okay. it would be happier if it was spending the greenhouse, the winter in a greenhouse, and it would grow year-round like it does in Hawaii and other places. But mm-hmm. some plants, uh, plumeria just happens to be such a big succulent plant that is able to store so much nutrient, so much uh carbohydrate material really in its stems that it can manage to get through the winter but it'd be happiest if it didn't have to but if that's what you have to do to keep it from freezing it will it'll let you get away with it okay and then the quick question is on um i have a boston fern and a button fern Uh and they they do really well on a porch but what is the freeze temperature for those two ferns and should i bring them inside both of them will be happier inside boston fern will freeze at or just below freezing button fern which is a palea palea rotundifolia is its true name uh it'll actually take temperatures down into the mid-20s without severe damage but just to be on the safe side i bring them both in Okay, perfect. That's it for today. Thank you, Tracy. You have a great weekend, Uh and let me get Teresa in here. Good morning, Teresa. Hi, Bob. I have some above-ground beds, Mm -hmm. vegetable beds, and I get these uh, grasses that grow up from the bottom. Right. And when I kill them with orange oil and vinegar, does it kill the root? Depends on the grass. If it's an annual grass, yes. If it's a perennial grass, like a Johnson grass or Bermuda grass, probably not. There's not Uh, anything. Even the nasty chemicals like Roundup don't truly kill roots and all. So don't be tempted. But uh, any of the annual grasses, yes, orange oil and vinegar will kill completely. Okay. I was just wondering how much I need to dig that grass out once it's dead. Not at all. Not at all. Okay. It's just okay. going to decay, and the orange oil and vinegar going to break down into things that will not harm anything you plant. So don't spend a lot of effort unless you're, a, what do we call it, a neat freak. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have the time to be that, I envy you very much. But you're not gaining anything, and you're actually taking away some stuff that could rot and turn into valuable organic material. Yeah, yeah. Another question is, what is the killing agent in orange oil and vinegar? Is it orange vinegar? oil orange oil softens things up. Orange oil is a solvent. The acetate radical in vinegar is what does the killing. Uh-huh. Because orange oil has gotten so expensive. Yeah. So I, um, I really, if, so if I just sprayed it with the, with the vinegar, that might be sufficient. 
Well, if you consider you're only using a very tiny amount of orange oil, it's not that costly. To buy a quart of it, yeah, it's expensive. But when you're only using a few tablespoons of it, it goes a long way. But vinegar alone can kill. This is the part of the show where we have the pleasure of visiting with the man who goes by the name of the Dirt Doctor. That would be Mr. Howard Garrett, who has the best website on the Internet at dirtdoctor.com. And we have the pleasure to visit with him on Saturday mornings. Good morning, Howard. Good morning. Thank you very much. How's everybody? Everybody is uh, enjoying uh, probably the two prettiest days we've had in the past six months, uh, the past couple of days. And looks like another one today. We just mixed it in with a couple of mornings uh, down in the 20s in the Hill Country. So we've we've seen some of our first frost around here. What about you guys? Yeah, we had 32 degrees, coldest it got here at the house. I think we had a little frost north of us. And now, like you say, yesterday was, was pretty. So fall colors starting to show up. If it stays um, relatively cool, we might have some pretty decent fall color this year. I haven't seen much down here at all yet. Just a little bit in some of the oaks, just a little bit in some of the sumacs. But uh, we should. Sure had uh, some good moisture last week throughout a lot of the area. I mean, some places got four inches, and some of us got, uh, you know, just a little over an inch or so, and then followed that up with maybe a third of an inch the past few days. So we've we've got some good moisture in the ground. Uh, it is we're filled with great potential, you might say, and we'll just see what happens. My next uh, column is uh, it'll appear this Thursday is on mulches, and I've been. Writing about that and getting ready to start my my annual uh, attempt to get people to manage the leaves properly in their on their properties instead of piling them up and burning them or putting them in bags and sending them to the landfill. You know, it's just you know what is it they say you just can't cure stupid, but we got to keep trying. And you know, old Malcolm was the one that told me stop and think about it. Those trees have roots reaching way down deep in the soil they're bringing up all sorts of valuable minerals and other materials and putting them in the leaves and that's mother nature's way of remineralizing mineralizing that's a little bit of a tongue twister but uh putting it back up on the surface of the ground and it just i just don't get it like you the people that rake them or burn them or you know, do anything with them. Uh, do you recommend just leaving them? Do you recommend shredding them up? What do you feel like the best thing to do with the leaves is? Well, step step one is to mow them or shred them and just yeah. you know change the volume and you change it by seventy or eighty percent. And you you can do it in the turf if you have turf, uh, as opposed to what we have here. And then you know the bulk of it when you when you have ground it into the turf as much as you can and you're about to start covering it up. Just grind the leaves up on the driveway or so, sure. or in the in the turf, either one, and rake rake up and put the uh, excess into bare places and beds and things like that. And then, as a last resort, and a very last resort, it goes in the compost pile. Yeah, uh, a lot of people think that's the first step, but I think that just putting it back in the ground is is really the best first step. Well, I couldn't agree more, and uh, chopping them up a bit helps them stay in place a little bit better, plus it exposes lots more surface area so the microbial activity can take place and start breaking them down and basically building soil. So, yeah, it's uh, some of the leaves are tougher than others. Do you recommend applying a little bit of dry molasses or garret juice or anything like that to uh, help uh, start up that decomposing process? 
Well, you can do that, and it'll speed it up a little bit, but if you don't have time, it's really not that big a deal. Like you always recommend, putting out a little quality compost, yep. uh, you know, along with it would speed it up, and that'd be great, too. Uh, the bottom line is you you don't have to do any of that. All that's kind of extra steps <laughs> to make it uh, go go fat, faster and better. You can just grind it all and put it in the beds and let nature take over like it does in the forest and on the prairie, you know. And has done for quite a few million years before we came along and started screwing it up with trying to make things better when Mother Nature already had it pretty well figured out. And uh, One of the things that surprises people when I talk about mulch the most, and I, I talked about it from a little bit different angle, all of them, uh, this, this time I talked about the ones that I dis approve of first and going on down to the ones that I approve of. Number one on the disapproval list, of course, is ground-up tires. Right. And and second, for several reasons, and then uh, number two are those awful dyed <laughs> mulches, which are being used ubiquitously. It's just amazing how bad they are. And then you get into Cypress, and Cypress, you know, is, is not that good for a couple of reasons. One, like uh, the ground-up dyed products, they're pretty much solid wood, solid mm-hmm. cellulose. There's not much bark and twigs and protein and that sort of thing like you get in ground-up native tree trimmings. Plus, the harvesting of cypress is an environmental problem. They're coming you know, from wetlands, a lot of them from Florida and along the Gulf Coast. So I don't like, I don't like them very much either. Well, I think we're... We're a hundred percent in the same vein of thought there, and I'll tell you one thing too that, and I don't know exactly how you go about finding it, but some of the grinding processes are more of a shredding process and really grinding up. And those people that have slopes where they're trying to uh, limit erosion, I sure do like the shredded materials because they sure do stay in place better than some of these things like just your bark. And uh, things that are really chipped up pretty finely, they they tend to float and they tend to wash away pretty easily. Well, that's a good point. And I started to put that in the column and I ran out of room. I probably ought to do a follow-up on that. I was thinking about the, exactly that the other day. There are grinders that are more munchers mm-hmm. than chippers, and they kind of go kind of slowly. They're, they're uh, more safe to be around for the workers, too. Sure, absolutely. Uh, than those things that run at that gigantically fast uh, RPM and just go, dwang, you know, and <laughs> turn it into chips. And I recommend that, and I use that material myself, and I'm afraid that that's the most common chipper right. that's out there being used by tree care companies. Well, and they call, them, they call them a drum chipper, and it is just that big spinning drum the chipper that we have and the ones that we like to see is more of that disc type of chipper and it makes it makes chunks but it also leaves some pretty good shredded material in there yeah, as well kind but, of munches yeah. I, I think that's a lot better but unfortunately it's not used that uh, that often the shredded if you get can i think the best mulch you could probably get would be a mulch that would be 70 or 80 percent cedar and 20 or so percent other kind of trees that mm-hmm. was munched with that kind of uh, grinder that we're talking about. You can't can't beat that. Now some of the companies are putting it into their compost their compost company and they're letting it compost for a while and get a little darker. Some are even adding compost 
to it, and those make really prettier products and oh, everything. Yeah. But just right out of the the uh, truck of the tree trimmer, from a horticultural standpoint, those products work as well as anything because the the balance, the carbon to nitrogen balance in them is just so beautiful. Oh yeah, and some people that want a black mulch, boy, if you can find anything that's got any pecan or anything in it, it's got all the what is the tannins and things in there that make a beautiful black mulch without all the dyes, but. I'm with you. I just, oh, it just turns my stomach to see the red mulches and all this other stuff, and I can only imagine what kind of toxic stuff they're putting into a really basically very good product when they're doing that. Well, some of the dyes they use may not be that toxic, but some of them I think still are. I think it varies yeah. a lot. That's one of the issues. But the main problem with them is that it's all wood, and it's yeah. lumber, and a lot of times you know, some of that stuff can be contaminated but being pure carbon you know pure cellulose it's just drafting nitrogen like crazy and requiring more fertilizer to be used and nothing good about it the other one that really surprises people i don't like pine bark i don't like pine bark at all and i used to recommend it heavily i got in for a period of time i got into everybody was using the fine to medium textured pine bark and i started playing around with the large chunky kind of mm-hmm. pine bark and i discovered two things one is that it held in place better one of the big problems with pine bark especially the fine and medium stuff is it washes and blows away it won't right. behave itself right and so i started using the big stuff on some big commercial projects that i designed and lo and behold it not only stayed in place better but it actually worked better even uh, to get ground covers established and things like that but then i learned well, you know, even even with that, you still have these terpenes and other natural mm-hmm. chemicals in the in the pine bark. It's not that good for biological activity, and that's where uh, the shredded native tree trimmings come in. I actually had a stage I went through before I got to that point, though. I probably ought to mention, and that was shredded hardwood bark from East Texas mm-hmm. is a good mulch, very good mulch. And that's what I used for a long time, and people bucked it because that was the first one after the fine bark and and all that I recommended. And some people uh, didn't want to do it just because Howard Garrett was saying to do it. <laughs> and then other people, you know, the one thing about shredded uh, hardwood bark is that it ferments a little bit. You get kind of an interesting almost an alcohol kind of a fragrance. I think it smells pretty good, but mm-hmm. some people or opposed to it, but it, it's shredded uh, material pretty well, and it stays in place uh, very well. I think it's a good mulch, too. How do you feel about pine straw? I know we don't see much of it down here. I don't know how much of it you see in Dallas, but I know that they actually bale a lot of that, and it's used widely in some other parts of the country. Well, it's in my column. I, I think it's a good mulch from a horticultural standpoint. It helps grow plants beautifully. It's really weird that the chemistry of the pine needles, the pine straws, is, is so different from the pine bark. Mm-hmm. You know, pine bark is designed to protect the pine tree, and it works well when it's on the trunk of the tree. It just sure. doesn't work that well when it's on the ground <laughs> right. as, as the main mulch. But the two problems with pine straw. One is if somebody throws a cigarette in it, yep. it can actually smolder. It won't flame, but it'll smolder and burn up. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is it looks a little phony, if you don't have any pine trees, <laughs> uh, you're exactly right. I I 
truly, you know, all these things provide some good physical properties, but all the other things that mulches do, I think if you're using materials from your own area, if you're using things from the kind of trees that grow around you, I still think that's the best of the best because you're just kind of recycling the nutrients sure, that absolutely. those trees have needed to grow. Yeah. No, you can't beat it. I didn't put in it, uh, but, you know, that coke, the, the cocoa fiber, right. cocoa residue, whatever it is, not good because it's not good for dogs. And there's some other mulches. Uh, actually, lava, of all, uh, all the gravels, there's one gravel that I'll recommend, and mm-hmm. that's lava gravel. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's as good as the shredded tree trimmings, but if you want that kind of a look, lava gravel, red or black, mm-hmm. is horticulturally very, very good for plant growth. Well, it's moisture, it's, yeah, cation exchange, there are a lot of things that are are good about it, but it's, you know, it's pretty hard on lawnmowers and other things, and somehow it seems to migrate out of the beds. But uh, the other thing, back to that pine bark, the thing that I hate to see, not only is it bad as a mulch, but it your so many nurseries use it as a part of their potting medium, and I think it's terrible in that because then they're basically just hydroponically feeding their plants, and people buy those plants and plant them, and you just have to baby them so much because they've just been on a intravenous diet so to speak so long that they don't make the transition to our native soils nearly as well as people the growers that are using a better material yeah we got on a little different topic a little while ago, and that was cinnamon. And I, you know, said that, uh, and I've, you know, used cinnamon before as a wound healer and kind of an anti-rot. But uh, particular, this caller was telling me that she'd been reading that uh, about using it as a rooting agent and actually incorporating it into soils. I've never heard about that. Do you think it has any efficacy there? Well, it probably does. It's pretty amazing. Maybe what it would do in the soil would function a little bit like cornmeal does in getting rid of some of the bad guys Mm -hmm. and letting the good things flourish. That's probably how it would work in the soil. You know, Uh like cornmeal stimulating trichoderma, it might help to knock out some pathogens and allow the trichoderma and other beneficial microbes to to come along. But... it's uh, it's pretty re- remarkable stuff. I, I uh, I'm gonna learn more about it as I work with these pure girl people. Of course, they're they're you know the three products they make are cinnamon and clove. Right, right. And so they're getting uh, they're killing weeds with it. They're uh, killing <laughs> diseases with it, and they're killing insects with it. Right. And it and the, it's just fascinating what they've come up with this formula that functions as a repellent and a killer. And it doesn't hurt beneficials very much. Not it's not a hundred percent safe for the beneficials, but it, it hurts them at a very very reduced uh, level compared to other things we recommend like orange oil and and other kind of uh, essential oil products. And I think we're so about about to have the pure grow products available through one of our big wholesalers down here and that's yeah, that's yeah. going to be a real good thing for us because i know that the other thing is you can you can run off ants with it. ants around the house just dusting cinnamon around i i have mostly beneficial reports about it working in that that regard it's probably an expensive thing to do in some cases you know if you used it a lot or 
over a large area, but uh, for small ant problems in the house, it's pretty good. Well, and I think it's kind of like garlic. If you go to one of these warehouse-type stores, you can get it a whole lot cheaper than just buying it in the gourmet section, you know, of the of the grocery store. And uh, I'm sure there are many grades. We we used to get it as stick cinnamon, too, and used it in a lot of decoratings. I love the aromatic qualities of it, and uh, it's just neat stuff. I and uh it, it's it's actually the it's the bark of the tree is what cinnamon's processed from isn't it yep. right you know you get the same kind of warnings about uh eating it that you do for using it out in the garden and stuff you know people i used to i don't eat oatmeal that often anymore probably mm-hmm. i'll get back to it like i used to but putting a little bit of cinnamon in oatmeal and other things is uh tastes good and it apparently is good for you know your gut health and everything, but but you'll see warnings about it uh, as far as eating it too much, hmm. too heavily, that it probably goes over the point of being beneficial and it can be uh, uh, not a good thing. All things in moderation, as we always say, with the possible exception of a good beer, but we don't need to go down that road right now. But it's uh, I avoid oatmeal. I used to eat a lot of oatmeal, but it's uh, I tell you what, I wouldn't touch it unless it's certified organic these days because that apparently is one of the, of the grains that has the highest amount of glyphosate residue and other toxic stuff uh, you know, on it when it hits the grocery store shelves. So, boy, if you go back to it, oh, it's, I didn't know that. yeah, it's uh, and it's it's interesting in that uh, there've been two or three cases where you know entire shiploads of oatmeal or whatever the precursor of it is have been turned away from some European ports, especially Italy, because they surprisingly they've gotten to where they're doing pretty good checking and for some of these pesticide residues, and uh, they've turned entire ships around and said, nope, can't unload them in our ports. We don't want that stuff here. And I, I, I yeah, wonder where it winds up, but it's such a positive thing. And the Europeans are so far ahead. I read an article this past week that Thailand has now banned glyphosate um, and, uh, oh, gosh, what's the uh, uh, DERS ban, uh, chlorpiferous, uh, they've banned that, and they've banned paraquat, which is a great start. And, of course, the farmers over there are up in arms saying, oh, we can't grow, we can't feed the people if we can't use these horrible products. And uh, i got news for them. They can probably do a much better job of it. But it's it's interesting the number of countries that uh, are so far ahead of us as far as uh, get getting some of the bad stuff out of the food stream. Well, related to, the, to that, I just ran into something kind of interesting. I was looking uh, up a couple of different uh, herbicides, and I ran into a, a document that is a list of herbicides. It, it doesn't look like it's 100%, but it, it's awfully thorough. It covers the, the common name, the, uh, uh, the chemical, the active ingredient, and the chemical group. Comes from and also the mode of action, uh-huh. and it is—it's uh, pretty good. It doesn't have Roundup in the list, which is, is really interesting. And I got to think, well, I wonder if they're trying to stay away from Roundup, but they do have glyphosate uh-huh. in there and say several brands. But it, the name of the website is GA, and I don't know what the—I can't figure out what the GA stands for. It comes from North Carolina State, and then some other PhDs. Uh, added to it, but it's gaweed.com, 
is the basic website. Oh. And then it's the specific one, this list is slash herbicides, um, MCA. I wrote some, some initials to remind myself what it was, and I can't remember what it was. Oh, mode of action. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, slash herbicide mode of action. And there's huh. the low dashes between it. But anyway, it's a useful, I think it's a pretty good uh, uh, list and useful for us to talk about in detail <laughs> a lot of the things that we don't recommend. That would be a great list. And um, if it's not copyrighted or anything, it uh, probably be pretty good to have uh, up on dirtdoctor.com where people can you know, find it easily. That's yeah, we'll put it there uh, for sure. I'm, I doubt that there's any problem with that since it comes from the universe. Exactly. Yeah. But anyway, that's a. Uh, I think that's a useful tool for people. There's more urea. That's what uh, you were t- referring to. Some urea yeah. earlier in the show, and that's what I got thinking about. And it's pretty amazing how many ureas are out there on the market. There. Just a ton of them. Yeah, Pickleram is the most widely known, but uh, um, I, I know there's some others out there. I don't, I don't know them by name. Do you? Any of them? No, I, there's a whole bunch of them on here yeah. that I've never heard of, and some of them are different chemicals than I thought they were. Uh, Image, for example, I thought mm-hmm. it was a cephalourea, and it's not. It's a um, uh, a term that I've never even. Uh, run into before. Let's see where I wrote it down. It's amidazolinone. Amidazolinone is hmm. what it is. Uh-huh. So anyway, this, this is a helpful list. People, uh, uh, sedge hammer is on there. It's one of the yeah. you know things people are recommending for nut sedge. It's a saphonal urea, for example. I didn't know that. So uh, you know, there's a bunch of a bunch of the things uh-huh. we know on here, but there's a ton of them that I've never. Never heard of. There's hundreds and hundreds of names. Out. I will look forward to looking it over, and I'll probably be as much in the dark as you. But um, I, all of the urea herbicides are like uh, like the picloram in that they're very slow to break down in nature, aren't they? Uh, yeah, re- uh, extremely recalcitrant. Plus the fact as they break down the compounds, you yep. know, the... Yep. Uh, metabolites in some cases are more dangerous than the original chemical uh, molecule there's there's a real easy answer just stay away from them stay organic yeah. read dirtdoctor.com deal with nurseries that carry quality products that uh, you know don't have all that in them but i don't know it's it becomes more frightening to me all the time how much of that is is in and on the foods that are sitting on the grocery store shelves and uh uh, I guess the good news is, and I don't know about Dallas, but of course HEB is our biggest grocery chain down here, and they, at least our store in Bernie, have have a very, very large organic section, and it seems to be growing all the time. I talked to the store manager about it one time, and he said, "Well, you know, tell our customers thank you because the company will let me put anything on the on the shelves that people will buy," and um, I just it it really makes me feel better but then i i look at the big sections of stuff that are not organic and the and look at the people that just don't seem to know the difference and it amazes me and the prices are also coming down and uh 
Um, we've got the natural grocers here, and they a lot of their stuff is fully 30% less than Whole Foods. And I just, I'm just i glad to see a greater availability out there all the time. Well, maybe this uh, list will help people scare them a, a little bit more about how much is out there that, that's bad, and you're right. One of the uh, interesting things that popped up in one of the news sources that I look at every day is that there was a report that just came out that talks about the fact that the profits to farmers is primarily coming, uh, as we have been telling people for years, Mm -hmm. from crop insurance and grants from the government. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. But I was delighted to see it put in print. And if we can get that word out to people, that more than anything could could and eliminate some of that support. Yeah. Uh, some people won't like me saying that, but eliminating that support or reducing it greatly would force people to use better thinking in their growing operations. And guess what they would do? They would end up going organic. Yep. Yep. Because it works better. This is getting paid for failure, and we've got. Uh, would be so nice if we got away from that. The other encouraging thing that I've learned, and I've got to actually get hold of Jeff Moyer and ask more about it, but that uh, Rodale is now putting some of their experimental farms. I think they've got one in the Midwest, and they're actually opening one on the West Coast. And I'm hopeful, you know, that maybe they will do the same thing here in the South sometime because they're showing agriculture and you know they're not planting gardens they're planting 200 acre plots and showing farmers how much better things grow organically and how much better price they get for their crops i think uh, last time i talked to him he was talking about corn and they had a 200 acre plot of uh, of non-gmo organically grown corn and they were getting like two dollars or twelve dollars a bushel whereas their conventional neighbors were getting $2 a bushel for their corn. So those kind of, I mean, that ought to get through even these thick-headed farmers that, you know, are so unwilling to change the paradigm. When you look at the bottom line, it's bound to get somebody's attention. So if they can demonstrate that kind of, that they can indeed produce more per acre and that they get a much better price for their crops, I can't help but think that, you know, some of these folks are going to eventually get the message and start doing more of it. Well, you know, there's all this talk about uh, medical insurance and everything and, yep. and uh, doing what you and I talk about and getting rid of these chemicals and getting the soil healthy and having organic uh, produce and everything mm-hmm. could fit into that whole conversation and be a big part of the solution to the thing rather than just seeing how much money we can pay to you know, to keep buying pharmaceuticals. And if we could change the name from health care to sick care, which is what it really is. But, uh, yep. oh, you know, <laughs> the political aspects are just mind-boggling. And, unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time for today. But we will have plenty of things to talk about next time around. And hope you guys continue to have some great weather. Maybe get a little golf in and report back on the on the condition of some of the courses and things like that around. In any event, we'll sure look forward to talking again. 
enjoyed it as always. Click on that red button at the top of DirtDoctor.com to find out about my books and my uh, art and the class that supports Texas Organic Research Center, and we'll see you next week. And as we move toward the end of the year, people need to remember as they're making their charitable contributions for the year, as I will be doing shortly, DirtDoctor.com is up there at the top of the list, and I hope people who are able to do so will certainly take advantage of the opportunity. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Look forward to it, Howard. Pets to the dogs and hugs to the girls, and uh, <laughs> we'll talk soon. Mr. Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor. DirtDoctor.com, best website on the Internet, in my opinion, and the opinion of a lot of you guys that get back to me and tell me all the things that you have learned on DirtDoctor.com. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's a great thing that he and Doug do that uh, just gives us all sorts of, uh, just a ready access, so to speak, of just just a world of different things. This list that'll be up there are the herbicides, a list of good organic nurseries in given areas. Just you can Google just almost or you can go on dirtdoctor.com and you know, look in the library to find just almost any topic you're looking for and hope you'll do so when you have questions because it's one place that you'll get information that is pertinent to Texas and certainly organic in its nature. To the phone line's gonna be Susan and Forrest and Charles and Susan's up first. Good morning, Susan. Hi, Bob. It's Suzanne. Suzanne, um, good morning. Are you there? I Did you hit the mute button on your phone, Suzanne? Okay. Tell you what, uh, let me put her on hold, and Kareem, talk to her and see what's going on with the phone line there, and uh, we'll come back to Suzanne, and I'll talk to Forrest first. Good morning, Forrest. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Hey. As usual, I'll always enjoy your show. Well, thank you. Hey, listen, if you've already covered this, I apologize. Uh, I've got a number of young trees in my landscape. Uh-huh. Uh, I've got some Texas red oaks, live oaks, crepe myrtles, uh, and then some red buds. And I want to f- uh, fertilize, or should I fertilize, this fall and also in the spring, and when do you fertilize, and what would be a good general fertilizer that I can use on all those if there is something like that? Oh, there is, absolutely. In fact, these species-specific fertilizers, in most cases, are kind of a kind of a come-on to try to buy you four products that are all the same. They just put them in a different bag. So uh, right. I, you know, I always recommend organic versus synthetic. Uh, for several reasons, because the nutrient is in what we call the cation form, which binds to the soil. Even though the numbers may be lower on a bag of organic fertilizer, the plants are able to use about 100% of the nutrient, whereas with synthetic products, they're, you're lucky if they use 10 to 20%. So organic, oh, wow, yeah. even though the numbers are lower on the bag, your your trees are actually getting more from that so whether you choose uh medino whether you choose oh gosh uh you know natural creation or nature's creation makes some great products maestro grow makes some great products uh there are a lot of different organics out there and um i would tell you to shop for price and availability as far as fertilizing i consider that um the fall is the single most important time of the year that you apply fertilizer because it does several things it makes your plants more cold hardy it lets your uh plants go to work or lets the nutrients go to work uh becoming you know bound in a form 
that uh, the plants can absorb and use in the spring as they put on more growth. So uh, more cold hardy, more available nutrient when spring finally rolls around. Um, yeah, I think now is a great time to fertilize. If you're going to fertilize once, do it in the fall. If you're going to fertilize twice, do it fall and spring. If you want the absolute most from that trees, from that, uh, from all your trees, uh, feeding about once a season, uh, I don't think you gain anything by going up more than about four times a year. But considering that the average release period for most of these fertilizers is about 90 days, if you would feed four times a year, you'd be absolutely maximizing um, the you know the nutrients that your trees would need. Now I have to follow that up by saying that be sure your trees have adequate moisture because while organic fertilizers will never burn the way some of the synthetic products do, uh, the plants can't use them efficiently unless they have adequate moisture. So be sure you're able to water. Yeah, copy that. So uh, what would be the fertile on the organic? What would be the fertilizer numbers that I would use? The three numbers. Just forget about numbers. Uh, They are they are meaningless. Yeah. Um, Okay. that's it's. uh, Yeah, that's what I say. Uh, You know, you look at a 1959, you got 19 percent nitrogen, but the plants are probably going to get 10 percent of that. So you're only going to get one point nine. You look at a four, three, two. You've got 4% nitrogen, but the plants are going to get 100% of that. So I just stopped looking at numbers, and I don't feel like, you know, people always talk about the ratios and things like that. Um, in our soils, potassium is rarely ever needed, and, you know, phosphorus is needed. Uh, it's important that it be in a form that the plants can use. But the first number is, I think, the most important, but I, I like I say, I, I just really hardly even look at the numbers anymore. The only thing I do is I look at that number, and if the first number is really high, I know it's probably not an organic fertilizer, so I'm probably going to avoid it. So are you saying that in terms of an organic fertilizer, there are no numbers? So when you buy an organic, there's just no numbers on them? Oh, no, no. There are numbers on there. They're required by law to be on there. But those numbers are going to be um, a a lot lower in an organic product than, uh, you know, than they, than they would be in a synthetic product. Okay. So sorry to belabor this in my, um, for having to ask again, but if I did buy an organic fertilizer, do I, do I look for a certain number then? No, is there a, no, I would look at a brand and I would just want it to be fertilizer, but um, okay. basically when you look at Medina, it's going to say growing green. When you look at nature's creation, it's probably going to be what they call their premium lawn food. When you look at Maestro uh-huh. Grow, they're going to call it Texas tea. But yeah. most of your organic companies recognize that one fertilizer pretty much does everything. And I guess the one exception is Fox Farms, and they make some pretty good products, and they put in a few specifics for citrus and a few specifics for evergreens. But in our part of the country, no, just kind of one fertilizer pretty much does everything you need it to with all the trees that you mentioned. Yeah, Yeah, cool. So I can put that on my uh, fruit trees as well. This afternoon would be a good time. Oh, perfect. Well, listen, Bob, thank you very much. And again, I always enjoy your show and have a great day. You do the same, sir. I appreciate hearing from you. All right. Well, back to the phone lines. And by the way, I should mention, I see Martin Bob and Jim both sitting in the producer's room this morning. So looking forward to their home improvement show coming up in just a few minutes here. But right now, good morning, Charles. 
Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Enjoy listening to you. Haven't been doing it as much as I like lately. Well, I'm glad you got there today. The city stopped taking paper. Many years ago, we burned it. Right. But it was for the several years now, we took it to the city recycle place. And I thought, well, I'd like to compost that. I've never been too good at it. But mm-hmm. then I think, oh, Lee, how do I, is, is that feasible at all, thinking about reducing the size of newspapers and magazines? You know, what can I do with that paper? Well, newspapers in particular, the the most important thing is that you be able to shred them up. And you can buy a paper shredder, you know, at just about any office supply store around. But people actually are feeding newspaper. These guys that are raising millions of earthworms, that's what they're feeding them is newspapers. Because newspapers are printed with soy ink now, which is pretty much harmless to the environment. And uh, I did not realize that the city had stopped uh, taking paper products. We still recycle them. We have a recycling dumpster, and uh, they may have some other suggestions about places you could take them. But on your newspaper, at least, if you can shred it up, you can put it in the compost pile, you can make mulch out of it, or you can create your own little worm farm. And that's uh, the worms do very well eating it, so it's certainly not harmful to the environment in any way. Some people will take it and just use it several layers thick and put it down as a mulch if they're trying to get rid of Bermuda, trying to keep nutsedge or something or other from coming through. They'll actually, you know, put it down, like I say, several layers thick and then put mulch on top of it. And it seems to be a great weed suppressor and then it will rots away. So lots of things you can do with that paper. Okay. Well, our little shredder would be challenged. <laughs> <laughs> to do the newspapers the worm thing sounds good and then the magazines with the shiny lee uh, pages i don't know well again they the landfill they no they they will break down um but just you know the more surface area you can create for the microbes to work on them um, the faster and better they will break down. But, again, if you know anybody's trying to suppress Bermuda grass or trying to create a weed barrier, just give them those and tell them, hey, just lay this down and put your mulch on top of it, and uh, it will rot away, and by the time it does, it probably will have gotten rid of the nuts edge or the Bermuda grass. Well, all right. We're just going to give some of that a try. That worm thing sounds attractive. (laughs) Well, it's really interesting. Charles, I appreciate the call. I'm going to get Eloise in here before the end of the show. Good morning, Eloise. Good morning. Good morning. What was your comment about oatmeal? That was very interesting to me. That much of the oatmeal out there has a lot of pesticide residue on it, specifically Roundup and some other toxic chemicals that I choose not to put in my body. If you find organic oatmeal, it will have much, much less uh, pesticide residue on it. I recommend natural grocers, and uh, even HEB has pretty good organic section now. Uh, that's what I wanted to know. Okay, fine. Thank you very much. Okay. Well. Uh, what what about, what about, I like that cereal, post-grate grains, and it says on there um, something about... Um, non-GMO, would that be safe to eat? That is much better. It's not as good as fully organic, but it tells you that it is no genetically modified things in there, 
And mm-hmm. that's a very good thing, but it doesn't guarantee that uh, it hasn't been sprayed with Roundup and some others. So, yeah, I always look for the little non-GMO butterfly on there. It says GMO Project Guaranteed. Uh, but where yeah. I can, I'm going to go for organic. But if I can't find pure organic, I'm always going to look for that uh, little non-GMO butterfly. You're very observant, and it's a real good thing. Well, I know that. My HEB does carry organic oatmeal, so I'm going to shift over to that because I was just buying their store brand. Thank you very well, much. Well, I want you to call me when you're 105 because you've been eating such healthy stuff. <laughs> Eloise, I thank you. I've Thanks. got to go here.